Good afternoon. My name is Tamika, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Coinbase second quarter 2023 earnings call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you would like to ask a question, you may press star one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press star one again. I will now hand today's call over to Anil Gupta, Vice President, Investor Relations. You may begin your conference. Good afternoon and welcome to the Coinbase second quarter 2023 earnings call. Joining me on today's call are Brian Armstrong, co-founder and CEO, Emily Choi, president and COO, Alicia Haas, CFO, and Paul Graywall, chief legal officer. I hope you've all had the opportunity to read our shareholder letter, which was published on, on our investor relations website earlier today. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that during today's call, we may make forward-looking statements. Actual results may vary materially from today's statements. Information concerning risks, uncertainties, and other factors that could cause these results to differ is included in our SEC filings. Our discussion today will also include references to certain non-GAAP financial measures. Reconciliations to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measures are included in our shareholder letter on our IR website. Non-GAAP financial measures should be considered in addition to, not as a substitute for, GAAP measures. We are once again using say technologies to enable our shareholders to post questions. In addition, we will take some live questions from our analysts. With that, I'll turn it over to Brian and Alicia for opening comments. Thanks, Anil. Q2 was a strong quarter for us as we demonstrated operational discipline, focused on product excellence, and helped drive regulatory clarity for the industry. I'll start by touching on operational discipline. We drove 194 million of adjusted EBITDA in Q2, marking the second consecutive quarter of positive, positive adjusted EBITDA. About a year ago, we started executing on cost reductions, and I'm happy to say that in Q2, our operating expenses are now down nearly 50% year over year. We ended Q2 with 3,400 employees, and we've been able to get a lot done by being a more efficient company at this size. Next, let me touch on product excellence. People use Coinbase's products because we're the most trusted brand, and we make crypto easier to use. Over the past decade, we've focused on compliance, cybersecurity, great design, user experience, and customer support. We've always taken a long-term view and tried to do the right thing, even when it wasn't easy or the rules weren't clear. Today, Coinbase is consistently ranked as the most trusted crypto platform across multiple markets, and this is a huge competitive differentiator for us. We have great product coverage in this industry and serve three distinct customer groups, retail, institutions, and developers. For our retail customers, Coinbase and Coinbase Wallet have moved beyond our best-in-class trading use cases. We now help customers make payments, save, earn rewards, access NFTs, use Coinbase Card, and access third-party applications in Web3. Coinbase has become a platform for a broad set of first- and third-party use cases with an increased range of functionality. And our goal is to become the primary way people manage their financial lives all over the world enabled by these powerful decentralized protocols that will become a larger fraction of the global economy over time. Coinbase Wallet provides a way for retail customers to access this functionality while storing their own funds via self-custody. Now, moving on to our institutional customers, we provide an integrated trading, custody, and financing solution through Coinbase Prime. And for our developer customers, we're building Coinbase Cloud with a powerful set of APIs and native on-chain solutions like BASE that allow every business to integrate crypto technology. In Q2, we launched our derivatives exchange in select markets outside the US. 
And we were also selected as the custodian in a number of ETF applications in our institutional business. A big focus for us over the next year is how we're going to be driving utility in crypto that goes beyond just trading. The first 10 years in crypto were primarily about trading, but we've seen our customer base shift its activity over time where the majority of our active customers now do something with crypto other than trading. My belief is that the next 10 years in crypto will become predominantly about non-trading use cases. So what could some of those be? Well, payments is a big one. As the scalability of blockchains improves by moving to layer two solutions like Lightning, Optimism, and Base, we'll see payments emerge as a larger use case. Getting more scalable blockchains will be as important as the internet moving from dial-up to broadband. We'll also see the rise of decentralized identity systems with decentralized messaging and social apps that'll accompany those connected right into those decentralized identities. And we're working hard at Coinbase to make it easy to connect your Coinbase wallet to any third-party app or DAP, which stands for decentralized app. In the Coinbase app today, you can actually visit the Web3 tab at the bottom right of, of our app and connect it to any third-party application out there in the ecosystem. More and more crypto utility will be happening on-chain. And at Coinbase, we like to say that on-chain is the new online, so we're fully embracing that. As we continue to make crypto trusted and easy to use, with these new use cases will help update the financial system globally and help a billion or more people benefit from this technology. So finally, I want to touch on how Coinbase is driving regulatory clarity for the industry. One of the biggest items holding back adoption of this technology is the lack of clear rules and, quote, regulation by enforcement that's taken place in the U.S. to date. While the rest of the world has made great strides in embracing crypto and Web3 technology with clear legislation, the U.S. has struggled to keep pace. Coinbase has an important role to play here. When the SEC refused to engage in rulemaking and instead pursued a regulation by enforcement approach, we availed ourselves of the court to help bring regulatory clarity to the United States and help get case law created. We've also been actively engaged with Congress, where we've seen bipartisan support to pass crypto legislation. In just the past few weeks, the House Financial Services Committee and the House Ag Committee passed the landmark crypto market structure bill, FIT21, and the stablecoin bill with bipartisan support. These bills go to the House floor for a full vote later this year, and from there, advance to the Senate. Coinbase is committed to helping ensure America passes crypto legislation and is not left behind. We've also begun activating crypto users across the U.S. to ensure their voices are heard in our democracy. One in five Americans have now used crypto, more than hold a union card, as one point of comparison. And our Stand with Crypto campaign has signed up about 60,000 crypto advocates to date across all 435 congressional districts. As an example of how we're activating them, in New York City today, we're hosting an in-person gathering with representatives from the offices of Senator Gillibrand, Mayor Adams, and Governor Hochul, and hundreds of crypto enthusiasts. By the way, you too as an investor can help in this effort by visiting standwithcrypto.org to sign up as a crypto advocate. If you want to ensure America embraces crypto technology and helps create clear rules around it, please help us by visiting standwithcrypto.org. Congressional town halls are happening all throughout the August recess, and we're encouraging Stand With Crypto advocates everywhere to reach out directly to their policymakers to support innovation and clear crypto regulations. Crypto is even proving to be an important topic in the upcoming 2024 presidential election, with most of the challenger candidates staking out a positive position. In a democracy, the government is for the people and by the people, and the citizens of the United States have made it crystal clear that they want to use crypto, and they believe in the potential of this technology. We will not allow America's leadership here to be destroyed by a few outliers in our government painting outside the bounds of the law. 
The various court cases being decided now, at a minimum, prove that we're what we've been saying all along, that there is no regulatory clarity. New legislation is needed, and the underlying assets themselves, as decided in these cases, are not security. In conclusion, although we're in a crypto bear market with volatility the lowest we've seen in years, Coinbase is financially healthy with our second quarter of positive adjusted EBITDA. We even generated $156 million in cash in Q2. We intend to hold headcount flat for now as we keep making progress on the above items that I mentioned. Meanwhile, we have the most trusted brand and the easiest to use products, and we're showing up day in and day out to do the hard work of running a trusted, secure, and compliant crypto platform. This is our competitive advantage. Our long-term focus on following the rules has proven to be the right strategy, as regulators have closed in on companies who didn't, another competitive advantage for us. And we're driving regulatory clarity in the US while expanding abroad in places where the rules are already clear. All of this sets us up to be the global leader across a variety of products and our three customer groups. Crypto is the most important technology we have to update the financial system globally. And Coinbase is the leading company in this space. With that, I'll hand it over to you, Alicia, to tell you tell us more about our Q2 performance. Thanks, Brian. So as Brian shared, in Q2, we made good progress on our journey to build an increasingly efficient and financially disciplined company. As you said, we generated $194 million of adjusted EBITDA, and we generated $156 million of cash. We ended the second quarter with a total of $5.5 billion of USD resources on our balance sheet. I want to shift and talk about the drivers of our results, starting with the macro backdrop and then discuss the financial performance. In Q2, crypto volatility, which is a key input into our trading business, continued to decline, and it reached multi-year lows. Our trading volume declined 37% in this environment. But importantly, it outperformed the global spot market, which declined 48% as we gained market share in the quarter. This provides the backdrop to our transaction revenue. The low volatility environment contributed to transaction revenue of $327 million, which was down 13% quarter over quarter. The average blended fees for both consumer and institutional increased quarter over quarter. This increase in fees was driven by a mixed shift of trading volume. We offered a simple and an advanced trading experience in retail. We offer trading through the exchange and through the prime platform and institutional. The fees differ by product and the mixed shift drove an increase in fee rate during the quarter. Subscription and services revenue was $335 million and exceeded our outlook. The outperformance was driven by blockchain rewards, notably higher MevBoost rewards and higher asset prices. In addition, we saw a higher percentage of cash invested in accounts that generate interest income. On the expense side, we continue to operate with heightened focus on cost and efficiency. As Brian mentioned, our quarterly recurring operating expenses, these are technology and development, general and administrative, sales and marketing, are down nearly 50% compared to the second quarter of 2022, when we really started to focus on financial discipline. In Q2, our total operating expenses were $781 million. Our recurring operating expenses were $664 million and lower than our outlook, mostly driven by our ongoing operational efficiencies. We provide a lot of detail in our letter. Lastly, I wanna to turn to our outlook for the third quarter. In our letter, we note that July transaction revenue was approximately $110 million. We expect subscription services revenues 
to be at least $300 million, assuming no material changes to the asset fund platform or the average crypto market capitalization compared to the end of July. In terms of our expenses, we expect tech and dev and GNA to be between $575 and $625 million, which is a slight increase from Q2 levels. This increase is driven by our stock-based compensation expenses. Due to our stock-based compensation recognition timing, we will have elevated Q3 levels, but we expect the second half of 2023 to be largely consistent with the first half of 2023. We expect sales and marketing to be consistent with Q2 at 80 to $90 million, as the lower Q3 spend from our NBA partnership is being offset by higher USDC reward payouts to customers. To conclude, I want to reaffirm our goal of improving adjusted EBITDA in absolute terms on a year-over-year basis. With that, Anil, back to you. Let's take some questions. Thank you both. So let's turn to questions. <clears throat> we are taking the most uploaded questions as determined by the number of shares and may combine questions that touch on the same themes. For the first one, starting with the big picture, a number of the most asked questions from shareholders touch on the next three to five years in crypto and for Coinbase. Maybe a question for you, Brian. What do you think or hope happens to the crypto industry over the next three to five years, and what does Coinbase's role in that look like? Yeah, so there's a couple of big themes that we think about over the next three to five years. Um, so scalability, regulatory clarity, uh, driving utility in crypto that's non-trading. Um, these are three of them. I'll touch on each one briefly and then talk about our role in it at Coinbase. So in terms of scalability, you know, having more scalable blockchains it's hard to overstate the importance of this. It's, it's again, it's kind of like the internet moving from dial-up to broadband. I think it's going to unlock a lot of new use cases. Um, it's going to make things like payments more viable. Um, today, unfortunately, on layer one solutions, it's still fairly slow, fairly expensive to get uh, payments to final confirmation. And, you know, ultimately, we hope to get every payment in crypto under one cent and, and one second confirmation. That would be a real game changer uh, globally. Um, you know, the second one is, and by the way, the way that that's going to happen is these layer two solutions, right? Coinbase has our own initiative there around base, but there's many others out there, um, Lightning and Optimism, Polygon, et cetera, which are really good, good efforts here. The second uh, big trend here is around regulatory clarity, which I mentioned in my opening comments. So the status quo just re really isn't working here. We're getting, there's conflicting statements being made by the two federal regulators in the U.S., uh, the CFTC and the SEC. Um, there's consumers being harmed, as we all know, um, and it's just not a level playing field where internationally companies like Coinbase are welcomed with open arms. Um, there's, you know, a clear regulatory framework, for instance, the MECA legislation that we saw passed in Europe, but, you know, the UK, Singapore, Brazil, um, every financial hub out there is really making an effort to pass legislation, and they're frankly ahead of where the U.S. is. So, you know, we were excited and really heartened to see that a few weeks ago um, that the market structure bill and the stablecoin bill did pass, did pass the committees um, in the House. And that's a really important first step. And we're hoping that the U.S. can build on that to get going even further. I guess the, the last one here I'll touch on is about utility. So, again, trading was the big use case in the early days of crypto, but it's already started to move away from that. Um, things like stablecoins for payments. Um, DeFi, NFTs, you know, these have all already gotten substantial traction, but I think with layer two solutions coming online, these can get much, much bigger. Um, there's an analogy that, um, an example, I think it's interesting to look at around, you know, text messages, I think at their peak reached about 25 billion uh, text messages a day. 
But when WhatsApp came online, it got to 100 or 125 billion messages a day. And it just showed you people wanted to send more text messages. It's just that the friction was high. You know, it cost a little bit too much. The friction internationally was, was there. The features weren't there. And so I think the same thing could happen with payments um, and various types of utility with these new types of decentralized identity and messaging and things built in this crypto native way. You know, the, the demand for it will go much higher as the friction is reduced. And there still is a lot of friction in the way money moves around the world today. So those are a couple of things on the horizon. Um, you know, Coinbase has a big role to play here. With scalability, I mentioned we're working on base. With regulatory clarity, I talked about how we're organizing our, our users um, in DC with Stand with Crypto. We're, we're you know, doing our own court case uh, to get case law created. We're all supporting this legislative efforts in Congress. Around utility, we're building a lot of this stuff natively into our own products, right? To just try to make all these things, um, you know, decentralized identity and DeFi and NFTs and stablecoins, just make it easier and easier to use how people in, interface with layer two solutions as well. So I think Coinbase is really the only company in the world that has the trust and the scale internationally and the expertise around crypto to actually make this happen. And that's a really important thing that we can go do. Next question. Recent enforcement actions remain top of mind for many shareholders. To that end, can you give an update on the litigation process with the SEC? What are the key issues at stake and how should we think about the timeline and milestones from here? Paul? Thanks, Anil. Well, with respect to the litigation with the SEC, I want to be very clear. We do think we can win. Um, we expect to win. But it's important to understand that our goal um, across not just the litigation, but all of our efforts um, engaging with the SEC and engaging with the U.S. government as a whole is to achieve regulatory clarity, to protect consumers, promote innovation, and essentially establish clear rules of the road that everyone can understand and follow. Um, we think that's how we all win, regardless of the outcome of any particular case. And, and that's why, um, while we are focused on the, on, the, on the enforcement action, we are also focused on legislation um, and other efforts that may provide the clarity uh, that I speak of. Now, the reason why we are so focused on pushing for regulatory clarity here in the U.S. is that at present, the st under the status quo, we have very conflicting messages about what the law provides, especially considering that many of these laws were written well before the Internet even existed. Take, for example, conflicting statements from the chair of the SEC and the chair of the CFTC, CFTC on whether Ethereum is a security. Or consider the fact that the chair of the SEC has taken very different positions in just the last two years about whether or not there are even regulatory authorities that apply to cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase. So regardless of the outcome in any particular case, um, it's clarity that we ultimately define as winning. Now, let me talk just a bit about the case. Obviously, we are um, disappointed that despite our good faith efforts and our efforts to be as transparent as possible, with the commission and with the market as a whole, the SEC did choose to bring an enforcement action against us earlier this summer. Um, and in response to that, um, we are pushing and uh, hard and making the same points that we have made throughout this entire um, challenge. Number one, that Coinbase does not list securities on its platform. We have a lot of confidence in that because of rigorous asset review process that we've undertaken. Number two, that SEC, the SEC lacks any authority to regulate digital asset exchanges, uh, exactly in the, in the way in which um, Chair Gensler acknowledged when he testified to Congress to that effect in May of 2021. 
And third, that when the SEC declared our registration statement effective in April of 2021, a month earlier, it never suggested whatsoever that there was any requirement to register. So what happens next? Well, tomorrow, as it turns out, in our case in the Southern District of New York, we will be moving the court for an order dismissing the case in its entirety. And we're gonna be uh, submitting a brief to that effect, which lays out all of our arguments for the court's consideration, which we expected um, to be fully submitted and taken under consideration at the end of October. We have full confidence in the arguments we're making to the court. We're certainly grateful for the opportunity the court has provided us to be heard early in the case after we've been working so hard and so long for clarity. But regardless, again, of any particular outcome on any motion or any court case, clarity itself is the goal. That's how we define winning, and that can come either through a court decision or legislation passed by Congress. Thanks, Paul. Our next question is, how does Coinbase plan to derive revenue directly or indirectly from the upcoming Base L2 platform? Does this hurt trading volumes by encouraging more users to go on-chain away from Coinbase? Brian? Yeah, I can take this one. So, first, I just want to correct a misconception in, in the question itself. So, the question asked, uh, will more users go on-chain away from Coinbase? Um, Coinbase is fully embracing on-chain, and actually, I, I think it's going to be the easiest way to access everything that you want to do on-chain. This is actually nothing new. It's been that way for a long time, even, you know, 10 years ago when uh, Coinbase was live. We allowed people that when you're sending and receiving transactions, for instance, those would happen on chain when you send to, um, on and off the platform. And in more recent years, you know, we've allowed people to access decentralized exchanges, um, various smart contract protocols through Coinbase Wallet, and we've made that easier and easier in the main retail app as well. So we, just to be clear, we want Coinbase to be the easiest way to access everything on chain. We think on chain is a very important part of where this industry is going. And, um, People are going to do that with Coinbase. <laughs> so those are not uh, contradictory items. Now, I think the heart of the question really asks about um, how we're going to monetize directly and indirectly base, which is our, our layer two solution. Um, and just a quick background for everybody who's not fully aware, you know, today blockchains uh, transactions are happening on what's called layer one. And um, they tend to be a little bit, they take longer to confirm. There's a little bit of a higher uh, transaction fee. And so the industry has been working for a long time on how to make that more scalable, how to make it lower cost, how to make it easier for developers to build on, on what's called layer two. It's kind of like, again, the internet moving from dial-up to broadband. So Coinbase has thrown, you know, tried to help this happen um, as a company in the space driving innovation. And on top of the, uh, the optimism stack, which is one of the layer two protocols, we've, we've launched um, our own layer two solution called Base which is being decentralized over time. And um, a lot of developer interest has happened and there's a lot of activities we're doing around that. So how will we monetize it? Well, the, the short answer is that base will be monetized through what are called sequencer fees. Um, these are sequencer fees can be earned when any transaction is executed on base. And basically Coinbase can, can run uh, one of these sequencers as others can over time. Uh, now indirectly, it helps us monetize as well because it helps us grow the, the size of the pie. It helps us grow the ecosystem. Um, you know, it, again, it comes back to these internet analogies, but if we can make the, the utility uh, that much better, the payments faster and cheaper globally, more and more people will use crypto every day. And um, that's how it, it indirectly, it'll just help our business grow. So I'll leave it there. Thanks, Brian. Okay, we'll take one more before jumping into live questions. Um, so question from a shareholder, based on some recent news, how will Coinbase generate revenue from its custody of the upcoming spot ETFs? 
Emily? Sure. Well, we're proud to be on this journey with some of the world's most trusted financial leaders. The primary way that we'll monetize in the near term is via AUCCs. And then down the line, we think there's a good deal of ancillary revenue that we can generate from things like settlement and other services. The reason we're excited is that this really should expand the pie and create positive impact for the space. It should broaden our reach and will bring new people and institutions into the crypto economy. Should these applications get approved, it should broaden the reach of the asset class as some of the biggest institutions in the world seek to gain exposure to Bitcoin and eventually to other crypto assets for the very first time. It'll generally create more legitimacy of the asset class. ETFs should also increase liquidity and market stability as we've seen with other asset classes. And it increases revenue opportunities for many industry participants, ourselves included. We're proud that Coinbase is at the center of applications and as you know, these institutions have rigorous diligence processes. We've been selected by many of the high quality applicants because of the capabilities and brand we've built. ETF applicants have selected Coinbase due to our compliance pedigree, customer trust, and scale. So how does Coinbase add economic value to these ETFs and their issuers? We offer first and foremost secure crypto custody. And over the longer term, we'll explore ways to drive monetization via settlement, advanced trading, and API reporting. We're also entering into bilateral surveillance sharing agreements with major ETF listing exchanges, including the NASDAQ and SIBO. We're definitely in the early innings, and it's important to note that these products are still going through the registration and approval process. So I just want to emphasize that while the whole opportunity is exciting and has the potential to expand crypto adoption, there's a lot of work to be done before the ETFs are even approved and available. But the future is very exciting. Okay, thanks, Emily. Uh, Tamika, let's open it up and take questions from the analysts. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Your first question is from the line of Devin Ryan with JMP Securities. Hey, good evening. Thanks so much. Um, I guess first question on uh, just the, the market share backdrop. So trading volumes, I think, were down 37% quarter on quarter, but the global spot market was down 48% quarter over quarter, which you mentioned. So that obviously indicates some market share gains. And so I just love to talk about the competitive landscape, and particularly as that's changing quite a bit here, just speaking to the opportunity for the firm to capture additional market share from here and just the things that you're doing to position um, to, to gain more market shares, it seems like you did just this past Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll start it off, and then, you know, Alicia, feel free to jump in. Um, so I, I think in general, we've seen a flight to quality, and that's been really a validating of our long-term strategy at Coinbase, right? Um, we've always tried to take this perspective of let's do the right thing, let's follow the rules, uh, let's work with regulators around the world, let's go out and advocate for regulation when it doesn't exist. And if, if the rules aren't clear, let's do the right thing, kind of what we think they would be if, if and when they come around. So that wasn't always the easiest approach to follow. It caused us to have to move slower at times, but I think um, it's been the right approach. So for instance, we did see that gain in share um, with simple trading in the U.S. There's a variety of factors that could go into that, um, but you know we did see um, Binance U.S. exit the market, which could have been one of the factors. Um, we have seen other markets around the world, for instance, in the U.K., where Binance exited and we saw our share gain. Um, now, I think you know, Binance offers lots of different products and services. Not all of those we are going to be able to offer, frankly. We may not be allowed to offer. 
So um, I want to make sure temper people's expectations a little bit there. But, um, you know, for instance, we launched our derivatives exchange internationally in the last quarter. We recognize that is a very important part of the market that historically we hadn't really been playing in. Um, we think that's a good opportunity to go and invest in, and um, we're going to continue to do that in more and more markets around the world. But as with everything we do, we're going to do it in a compliant, entrusted, legal, regulated way. And so we may not be able to offer everything that uh, competitors have offered in the past. Um, that being said, I think it's the right long-term solution. And so hopefully we continue to gain share uh, where people start to value uh, trust and, and compliance and a, a flight to quality. Okay, terrific. Um, just to follow up here on institutional adoption, obviously regulatory challenges continue to be an overhang, but the ripple summary judgment was seemingly something to help build some confidence here for, for a number of folks. I'd just love to maybe uh, hear about some of the green shoots that you're seeing in your business or, or takeaways uh, from the state of the crypto summit um, may indicate that institutions are either beginning to reenter the market or um, you know, actually um, more active in the market, um, or, or is this just really we need to see comprehensive legislation for step function improvement? I'll offer some comments there. We were really excited to see the engagement at the crypto, State of the Crypto Summit that you mentioned earlier. We brought together over 400 institutions that included hedge funds, asset managers, also included some global regulators and and others. And the spirit here is everybody is building. As we also shared in my remarks, we've seen growth in our prime platform quarter over quarter. So despite the market volume being down, that was an area where we did see growth. And we're seeing more and more institutions put money to the space. I think we can also see the spirit of institutional adoption through these ETF applications that Emily spoke about earlier as well. So we're seeing institutions continuing to build through the markets, whether it's ups and downs in volatility or whether it's through regulatory headlines. They recognize the long-term value of this asset class, and we're seeing momentum on that front. Okay. Thank you so much. Your next question is from the line of Lisa Ellis with Moffat Nathanson. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my question. I, I had a follow-up question, maybe Brian, for you on on the the, the priority you raised around scalability, um, and and driving scalability in crypto over the next, you know, in, in order to um, you know, shift beyond trading and into other utility-oriented use cases over these next several years. Just thinking, the layer two solutions have been around, you know, now. I think Lightning was started back in 2015. What is it that has to happen to kind of break that free? You know, what's been holding back the usage of these layer two solutions to increase scalability um, in crypto and, and utility for things like payments or things like identity, as you said, just faster transaction speeds, lower cost transaction speeds. Like just from, you know, from our perspective, kind of as observers, maybe more in the space, like what are the signposts that we should be watching for, you know, to, you know, to sort of see that progress happening? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, if I go back to 2015, I, I, um, I probably would have thought it would have happened faster. Um, there was a couple, you know, we, we did a deep dive back then on Lightning and it was very nascent. It was frankly a little bit complex. Um, just the way that liquidity pools have to be spun up, um, you know, how transactions could be uh, gener received and sent on a mobile device where, you know, the app is not always in the foreground. 
Um, these were the types of kind of challenges that we saw early on. And, and at that point, back in 2015, we determined Lightning wasn't ready. Um, we're, we've been taking a fresh look at it, and there's been a number of really great teams uh, from different companies working on open source solutions and some uh, proprietary ones that have tried to help advance the state of technology there. Um, I think the layer two solutions on Ethereum, uh, like Polygon and Optimism and Arbitrum, um, base is built on one of those Optimism, you know, have, um, I've, they've actually gotten more adoption. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to make a, you know, we're, we're supportive of every innovation in the industry and there's kind of, everybody has their favorite one. And so we're, we always have to be a little bit neutral, but the, the ways that you can track the adoption of these things, um, Actually, a lot of the data is public and it's online because these, because the blockchains are public themselves. So for instance, you know, you can go look at the daily number of transactions happening on, um, Ethereum layer twos. You can look at the, the TBL metric, which, you know, total value locked. Um, there's various sites out there like, you know, DeFi Llama and places like that. You can go um, track some of this publicly available, uh, data. And we actually have seen a pretty nice, um, growth we have seen pretty nice growth in um, ethereum layer twos just in the last i'd say like three to six months and so a lot of it, it comes down to usability challenges as well so if you're if you're an average user um you know they don't really need they don't really want to know or maybe they don't even care like about these technology what is, what is it doing underneath like the average user doesn't want to have to learn how to bridge from layer one to layer two to just send their payment they just want to pay for something and it quote unquote just works so i think what needs to happen, and this is something Coinbase can really help on, is we can make this seamless in the background. So if somebody goes to pay for something online or a friend um, or a remittance payment or something like that, it should really um, negotiate kind of uh, almost do a handshake underneath that would say, okay, what what types of uh, cryptocurrencies um, on what chains and you know is this recipient uh, accepting? And which ones do I have? And it would basically do the bridge or the conversion real time for you underneath. And so you would just see the amount of um, dollars or something like that that is going over the wire and it arrives in one second with one cent. That's kind of, and you don't have to worry about layer two and all these kind of things. That's, that's the ideal outcome we need to get to. And a lot of hard work and computer science needs to go into making all of that seamless. So, um, and it's a coordination problem amongst the industry too, you know, because everybody has their own favorite solution and, and that's a good thing. I'm glad a lot of ideas are being tried, but, um, we can sort of help by enabling the best ones and sort of rallying people around good solutions so that we get a little bit more consistency, interoperability across the industry as well. Your next question is from the line of John Toretto with Needham Company. Hey, great. Thanks for taking my question. Um, first, I just wanted to drill into the take rate a little bit more because it looks like it expanded to the highest level since, uh, since Coinbase became a public company. Um, so first off, I guess if the advanced trade mix goes down, um, is there room for it to expand further from here? And then as a follow-up to that, if so, kind of how confident are you that uh, you can continue to, to increase retail spread before maybe you do start to, to lose some market share, some migration away. Thanks for the question, John. So in Q2, this was mixed shift as we shared. So if you just think about simple math and you say we had zero advanced trading as a scenario, this 
blended average fee would then be higher for retail because it would reflect the entire simple platform. So concentration of simple versus advanced in consumer will change the number meaningfully period over period. As we said earlier on the prepared remarks, we did see a greater decline on advanced than we did on simple in the quarter, which is what's driving what you see is the performance of that blended fee. But that fee in Q2 is just math. Broadly on your question, we did raise spread as we shared in Q1. That was a Q1 event. And we haven't seen any meaningful change in our consumer behavior from that event. We monitor that very closely. We experiment with our fees on a regular basis, and we think that's part of just building a healthy business to understand pricing with our customers. So trust is our premium brand that we're selling. Product diversity is what we're selling, the experience, the app platform that Brian mentioned earlier. And we think we have a differentiated product in the market, and so we are hoping to price that appropriately. Your next question is from the line of... OIP, U.S. Tiger Securities. Um, hi, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the question. Uh, so, um, just want to dig a little bit uh, deeper to the to the retail trading fee rate question. So, what is the average, uh, uh, you know, rate for advanced trading and non-advanced trading, uh, respectively? And do you think the same dynamics could you know, real sustain in 3Q. And then my second question is, um, you know, despite the recent waves of the Bitcoin's value ETF uh, applications, the USDC market cap has been declining. Uh, but on the other hand, you mentioned the growth of prime indicators uh, institutions are still investing in crypto. Do you think on a net basis, the US institutions are losing interest in crypto and uh, when can we see a turning point for USDC market cap? Thank you. Let me start with the fees, and then Brian or Emily, if you want to talk about USDC and U.S. institutions. So, Bo, on the fees, we have multiple products within the retail and on the institutional side. So, within retailer consumer, we have simple trading, we have advanced trading, we have Coinbase One, and then underneath that, we have fiat to crypto and crypto to crypto. So, I can't give you a specific blended average for each of these products. There's also tiered fees on the advanced product. What I can tell you is that our fees are transparent, that they're posted for customers, and so customers know what the fee is before they execute a trade on our platform. So then the blended average fee weight which we report, it's just a mix shift. It is math of, that results from the trading behavior of our clients on our platform. So I can't give you the, what we expect in Q3. Um, there's nothing that we do other than focus on driving engagement, driving revenue. That is our primary goal. Shifting gears and talking about USDC, as Brian shared earlier, we did see a decline in USDC market cap as a result of the banking crisis in Q1. So I think we all know that when Silicon Valley Bank failed, USDC had a DPEG that precipitated a decline in USDC market cap. We are working collaboratively with Circle and to try and stabilize USDC and to grow. And we made our own numerous product initiatives in Q2 to try and engage further. I think, Brian, maybe you want to share again what we think really the opportunity for stablecoins broadly is around these layer two solutions. Yeah, sure. I mean, just one or two other quick comments on the USDC market cap. I think. Um, you know, this is public as well. Binance actually moved some of their funds from USDC into another stablecoin. Um, 
But I think that the data we have on in the last six or seven weeks, I believe that, that um, the USDC market cap is up um, net of that. And so um, that's an important data point. I think there was also a perception that emerged just about U.S. regulatory risk. Um, and there was sort of this perception that USDC had more of a U.S. nexus than um, Tether or something like that. And to be honest, I'm not sure how well informed that is because, of course, you know, Tether is storing U.S. dollars as well. And any bank, whether it's in the U.S. or not, um, that's storing U.S. dollars kind of needs to have a corresponding bank relationship. And it's within the uh, nexus or purview of the U.S. government. So I think that I'm not sure how well informed that perception was, but it, sometimes perception is reality. Um, yeah, I mean, to Alicia's point, I, I think that we're very bullish on stable coins. I think that it's an important use case. Um, it's an important stepping stone to getting um, people access to better financial services. And then ultimately, I think, by the way, long, you know, longer term, I think we could see um, Bitcoin and, and sort of these more deflationary assets start to be used more as um, currencies and, and money as well. But today, people have such a high ex expected upside on it that they're not willing to spend it in high enough quantities. So um, anyway, I'll, I'll pause there. But uh, those are our high level thoughts on the market cap. Your next question is from the line of Owen Lau with Oppenheimer. Good afternoon, and thank you for taking my question. Could you please give us uh, more color on the traction on Coinbase International Exchange? I think you have 50 institutions, $5.5 billion in contract volume. So uh, what's the next step, and when do you expect revenue to be more material? Thank you. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely early days on Coinbase's derivative exchange. We've really just kind of launched it in Q2 with a small handful of, of clients, as you said, the, really kind of like a beta launch um, API only. So some of the next steps that we'll be working on are integrating it into our, our retail app. Um, this advanced trading for retail customers is important. Uh, we'll be launching it in our Prime app uh, for institutions. Um, We'll be expanding it to more geographies as well. And there's various, various licensing requirements in the major markets around the world to get that working. Our customers have also asked for features around um, unified margin and uh, additional kind of financing and leverage type features. Um, so those are some of the things on the horizon. Um, you know, you can track the, um, the data is public uh, just around the volume of the books that we have there live today. Uh, on our site, international.coinbase.com, and you can, we'll also be adding more books. That's the other thing I should mention. Uh, today, we just have four books live. Two of them got added just in the last week or so. We'll be adding uh, more books as well. So those are all next things that we need to do. There's a lot of work to do to get that to be um, where we want it to be, and it's, it's definitely very early days. So we're not really commenting on the revenue piece of it yet. Our next question is from the line of Dan Dolive from Mizuho. Hey guys, thanks for uh, taking my question. I really appreciate it. You know, we were talking about the, uh, you mentioned the share gains, but you know, if I look at our data, at least when you compare it to, um, you know, some of your key competitors in the U.S., like Robinhood, I mean, it seems like you are feeding some share. And my question is, is do you think that's true? And, and if yes, like, is it because, you know, the price hikes, uh, you're seeing some pushback from uh, the users, or is there any sense of that? Thank you very much. Thanks for the question, Dan. 
So as we said, we experiment heavily with any fee change that we roll out to our users, and we're not seeing any change in behavior based on fee changes that we made in Q1 on our platform. We're really excited to see Robinhood's growth in, into crypto. We think it broadens the users who are interested in crypto as an asset class. We are heartened to see more and more companies add crypto to their portfolios. One of the ways that we differentiate ourselves is that we're a crypto-native company and that we're looking to build more crypto-native experiences for our users, such as staking is a big one, but then increasingly the integration to our DAP marketplace and the ability to use applications on-chain. So we think that we offer a differentiated product suite and that over time this will really attract and grow users to our platform. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I think we generally, it's important we just grow the size of the pie here. Crypto is still in its infancy, right? We really, we genuinely mean this when we say we want crypto to be integrated into every financial service business out there. That, you know, fintech apps, um, neobanks, you know, traditional banks, traditional financial service companies, um, these ETFs, right? Like we don't view it as zero sum, we view it as positive sum. And the goal is really to help update the financial system globally. And we need to do that. We needed this to be integrated in all kinds of products and services out there. And, you know, to Alicia's point earlier, we didn't really see any material change in uh, fees in Q2. So it, it, I don't think that's um, something that would have driven that in this case. Timika, we've got time for one more question, please. Your final question comes from the line of Ben Budish with Barclays. Hi, uh, good evening, and thanks for taking the question. Um, I wanted to circle back to the question kind of around simple versus advanced trader. I think, you know, since like last December, it seemed like the simple trader has been kind of remarkably consistent, whereas the advanced trader sort of comes and goes with market volatility. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the sort of different customer profiles you see. Um, you know, how do they kind of compare? Is it sort of a, a demographic or an income or, or sort of interest level thing? Because I think the we would sort of assume that maybe the advanced trader is, is, is more engaged, but it seems like the simple trader is there quite consistently. So what are your kind of reads on, you know, the, the sort of characteristics of these customer types other than the choice they're making with how to trade? Yeah, there's, it's tough to answer your question because it's a wide variety of different people who are accessing it. Um, I do think that, so, when we say pro trader, it could mean a variety of things, right? It could mean sort of like a, a pro a prosumer or semi-pro. They may actually be, you know, trading through our interface. Um, they're more sensitive on fees. They're more interested in short-term trading, whereas the simple simple traders may be doing more buy and hold, um, you know, setting up a, a weekly or monthly kind of recurring buy that's dollar cost averaging type stuff, which can be more consistent, right? Um, now, I think pro trader could also mean, um, you know, hedge funds and the largest market makers in the world and, you know, um, pension funds and endowments and sovereign wealth funds. And so it, it, it really runs a wide gamut. I think that we have more work to do to serve the, uh, the pro trader segment of the market with some of those features that I mentioned around um, more order books, you know, derivatives, trading, ways for them to get leverage is a big one, um, kind of unified margin. And so um, I think in those, I think as we kind of mature our, our product offering around the pro traders, which we still have more work to do, 
I think we, hopefully we will see that in even in up and down markets, we'll see more activity be more sticky there because, you know, pro traders in theory, I think you're right, they should be able to find opportunities to trade whether the market is, no matter what the market is doing. So, um, yeah, I think we need to mature our, our pro trader offering a bit and that may emerge over time. I appreciate it. Thanks for the color. Okay, well, that does it for today. Thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to speaking to you again on our next call. This concludes today's call. Thank you for joining. You may now disconnect.